We good? There we go. So today we're talking about Judas, and um, I think sometimes we forget like the emotions and the struggle that some of these disciples went through. And so today we're looking at the real personal aspect of, of Judas and just who he was, and uh, and and what he actually um, did to Jesus as his as his friend and in, in betraying him. So um, you might be surprised and be thinking that okay, we're already up to um, the Passion Week, the week where Jesus suffers and then is crucified in this story in, in John. Uh, but if you don't know the book of John, from John, John chapter 13 all the way to the end, 21, is pretty much the Passion Week. And, and so John focuses a lot of his time and attention on that part of the life of Christ. And so we're already at that point in this, uh, in this book. And so turn with me to John chapter 13. We're looking at verse 18. John 13, verse 18. And what's happened is Jesus and his disciples have gathered for the Passover feast in the upper room that you've heard about so much, and they are ready to celebrate uh, the Passover, which, which celebrated uh, the Jews getting released from Egypt, and this is their celebration of that. And little do they know, the Passover feast, the whole thing points to the person they're sharing the feast with, Jesus, right? And so um, in the middle of this feast... In John chapter 12, we see that Jesus uh, takes a bowl of water, takes off his outer garment, and he walks around and washes each one of the disciples' feet, including Judas. So imagine this, Jesus the Messiah, he knows Judas is about to betray him, and he still bends down and washes the feet of his betrayer. It's a powerful image. And here we pick up in John chapter 13, verse 18. Look with me, where Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And so the image here is, is um, he's referring to Judas. The image here is, is like a horse lifting up its heel before it gives you a swift kick. And Judas is about to... Um, betray Jesus. Look at verse 19. It says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives this one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So we need to look at verse 19. Focus on the verse. He says, I am telling you this now. So he's he's saying, I am telling you that someone's going to betray me before they betray me, so that when it happens, that you'll know that I'm the Messiah. And you might just not look at this at first glance, but I want you to see this very carefully. Just look at the grace in that statement. Just look at the, the work that Jesus is putting into and arguing for himself and saying, like, look, I am the Messiah. I'm going to tell you what's about to happen so that when it does happen, you'll know that I'm the Messiah, that I was sent by God to come into the world to save the world. And so people say things like this all the time. They say things like, okay, if God is real, then why doesn't he just show up and prove it? If God's real, why doesn't he reveal himself? Have you heard that before, that argument? It's a fair question. But the question's already been answered by Jesus. Jesus did show up, and he proved it. Jesus did show up, came onto this earth in the form of a man, and, and proved it. 
and showed himself to be the Messiah. And what I want you to see here that I think this is a great example of God's grace because it's prophesied that Jesus will come to earth. It's prophesied he's going to come to earth in the Old Testament. Then he comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He performs miracles, many miracles. He fulfills prophecy. He says what's going to happen before it happens, and then it happens. He dies on the cross and is resurrected. Hundreds of people see him after his resurrection, and they confirm it. And doubters and skeptics become believers as a result of the resurrection. I think one of the most powerful evidences of the resurrection is that some people in Jesus' own family, his, brother, his earthly brother James, was not a believer his entire life until after something amazing happened and it was the resurrection. Can you imagine that? You're the Messiah, you're Jesus, and your own flesh and blood, James, does not believe that you are who you say you are until after the resurrection. Something powerful had to happen. James had to see something powerful and significant for him to believe. And so doubters and skeptics became believers after the resurrection. And so Jesus here tells them, what's going to happen before it happens so that when it happens, they can have evidence to believe. And I look at that and think, man, what an amazing, gracious God that you and I serve. That God is giving humanity every chance that he can to reach out his hand and say, look, I'll, I'll give you all the evidence that you need. I'll, just, just put your faith and your trust in me. I'll give you plenty of evidence I speak to people all the time that will tell me things like, you know, yeah, I believe. I don't believe in Christianity. I believe in this or I believe in that. Just fill in the blank, whatever those religions might be. And I want to look at them and say, you know, but what evidence, like what authority are you looking at when you say you believe that? Like you're, you're just pushing aside all of the evidence of Christianity and all of the, the, the fact that so many people were miraculously transformed by Jesus Christ throughout history. You're going to push all that aside and say, I believe this, just on a hunch, just because it sounds better, just because it sounds right, when you have no backing for what you're saying you believe. And so Jesus, he spends much of his life trying to show people, like, look, I am who I say I am. And he's doing the very same thing here. But then there's Judas. Judas. So among these other 11 men who are believers, we have Judas, who is not a believer, never became a believer. He's a man just like the other 11 up to this point. In fact, he was so trustworthy, they put him in charge of the money. I mean, you guys know, you're not going to, if you're thinking of who's going to be in charge of the money, you're not going to pick the guy that you're like, I got questions about that guy. Let's not put him in charge of the money, right? Like, you don't pick that person. You pick the person that you think, that's a trustworthy guy. He does his homework. He's a great friend. Like, he's, he's trustworthy. And so that's the person that you think of when you say, who's going to be in charge of the money? And so Judas had a reputation for being someone that they could trust. And so they, give, they put him in charge of the money. And uh, here they are eating dinner, like so many times before. The disciples must have, must have shared countless meals with Jesus throughout their three years with him. And you guys know that when you share a meal with other people, it, it brings you closer, right? Like sharing a meal with someone is evidence and proof that you are close to people. Um, just think of when you go to your lunchroom at school on, during the week. Who do you eat with? Your closest friends, right? That's your closest friends is those who you eat with. 
And so Jesus is having a meal with his closest friends, but he knows that one of those people, Judas, is going to betray him. And you know from experience that there is nothing more hurtful than a friend who betrays, right? There is, you know who your enemies are. It's, it's, it's worse to have a friend who betrays you because everyone knows if you have an outright enemy, you, you just know they don't like you. You just know your enemies. But to have a friend, a traitor, a betrayer is someone who looks like a friend but acts like an enemy behind your back. And this is the very thing Jesus experienced. So most of you know what that feels like. And if you're here this morning, you think, you know, yeah, I've, I've been betrayed. Um, so-and-so betrayed me. So-and-so was a traitor to me. Um, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. I want you to go ahead and discuss your uh, first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. All right, let's look at uh, verse 21. Picking up in verse 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So imagine this for a minute. So Jesus says, someone's going to betray him. And so the disciples all break out into a cold sweat because they think to themselves, there's a one in 12 chance that it's me. And so they begin to worry a little bit, right? And then um, Peter motions to John, and Peter says to John, he goes, he's like, ask him who it's going to be. And then John whispers to Jesus, he says, okay, Jesus, you just said one of us is going to betray you. That's kind of a big deal. So who is that going to be? And then Jesus replies, it is the one to whom I give this bread. And so he pulls off a piece of bread and dips it and hands it to Judas, at which point everyone is like, awkward, right? To use your vernacular. And then at that point, Judas takes the bread and he leaves the room. He says, what you're going to do, go and, go and do it. So no one thought it was going to be Judas. He was in charge of the money, as we said before. He was seen to be a trustworthy person. And so I want to explore this for a minute. Why does why does Jesus identify Judas by handing him a piece of bread? I mean, Jesus could have very easily just pointed, right? Who's it going to be? It's going to be that guy right over there. He could have easily done that, but why does he use bread? I want you to, this is really, I think, a cool part of this story. Listen to this. So where else does Jesus talk about bread? He refers to himself, right, as the bread of life in a previous miracle. He calls himself the bread of life. And so when he takes communion with them, he also says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if Jesus is the bread, is it possible that he's saying to Judas, here, Judas, 
I give myself to you. Even in, the, even in this betrayal, I offer myself to you. I am giving myself over to you so that you can do with me what you will. For the last three years, he has given himself to these disciples. And even now, in this betrayal, he still gives himself to Judas, the betrayer, the traitor. And so Jesus' body was broken for us. And this betrayal is what led to his body being broken. And so as he hands this bread to Judas, it's like he's saying, take this, my broken body, take my broken body and do with it what you will. Because God is going to use even this, even this betrayal God is going to use for his honor and for his glory. Most of you, when you think of the Last Supper, you think of this picture most likely. Anybody have this picture on your wall at the house? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe a grandparent has it on their wall because it's kind of an older picture. It's not really in style these days, you know. Um, so uh, this is the Last Supper painted by who? Do you know who painted this? Da Vinci? Not a turtle, but a man, right? So uh, this is Da Vinci's painting. And um, now if you notice... This is how we all visualize this chapter because of this picture, right? Uh, but when you really understand, like, how they ate meals in the ancient uh, part of the world, in that part of the world, it was not done like this at all. This is not how it looks. Sorry to burst your little bubble on that. But um, this is not what it would look like. What it would look like was they would have uh, probably three tables in the shape of a U, a U-shaped uh, three tables there. And there was a head table where Jesus would sit, and what they would do is they would actually recline on the floor instead of sitting in chairs. And so they would generally lean on their left elbow and have a pillow under them for support. And their feet are facing away from the food. It's always good to have the feet away from the food, right? You don't want nasty feet close to the food. So feet are always facing away from the food. And so this is why Jesus was able to walk around and actually wash their feet as they were having this, this meal together. But it also explains something else because it says that John, who was close to him, it says he was like right next to him. So John, they think, was to his right. And so Jesus is kind of laying like this. I'm not trying to do like a, a model pose here, but um, on his elbow, laying flat on the ground, feet going that way. And then John's like in front of him, like to his right, okay? And so, um, so John's able to kind of lean back and ask him a question. And so when, when you read the story, don't, don't think that John and Jesus are cuddling. They're not cuddling, okay? Okay. Um, He's just really close because the way they would set themselves up in, in these kinds of situations. And so to his right, see these meals, where you sat was a big deal. So Jesus at the head of the table in the middle, and John is to his right because that's the spot reserved for a close friend, and John was his close friend. And then to Jesus' left, his back area, right? there's a spot reserved for a special guest. This is a seat of the special guest. Can you guess who was in the, that seat? It was Judas. So Judas is right next to Jesus. How else could Jesus hand him a piece of bread in that moment? So Judas is in the seat, the designated seat of the special guest at this meal. Are you, are you catching this? Jesus puts his betrayer, his traitor, in the special guest seat. What grace. 
What grace do we see from Jesus offering himself the bread of life to Judas and saying, this is an act of friendship. I mean, to dip something in, um, to dip someone's bread and give it to, that's an act of friendship. And when you guys go to Chili's, like, you don't dip the queso and go, here, eat this. Like, you don't share food that way. That would be, that's like, that's too intimate. That's not, that's weird, dude. Like, what are you doing? Put that back. So that's an act of friendship, like very intimate friendship. And Jesus is giving himself to Judas in this way as his friend, as a special guest. And in a way, I think what you see here, listen, in a way what you see is we serve a God who still pursues. We serve a God who is pursuing the very man who would betray him. He's extending himself to, in friendship to Judas and saying, okay, do with me what you will, but I'm still going to extend grace to you. I'm still going to give you bread. I'm still going to give you the seat at the table, the special guest seat at the table. I'm still going to pursue you in spite of your sin against me. What a gracious God that we serve. And I want you to know this morning that um, God is pursuing some of you right now as we speak. Like you think you're too far gone. You think you've done too much. You've, you've said too much. You've done too much. You're, you're too much baggage. And Jesus Christ is still pursuing you. In the same way he pursued Judas, he is still pursuing you because he is that gracious. The fact that you're even here on a Sunday, a rainy Sunday at that, proves that he is pursuing you. You're not here by accident. He's pursuing you with his grace and wanting you to turn to him in the same way he was wanting that for Judas. Look at verse 27. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Okay, stop right there. I know that the doubters and skeptics would say, see, see, it's not his fault. Satan did it. Satan made him do it. Judas is not in the wrong here. He's just a neutral pawn caught in the crossfires of spiritual warfare. Let me explain this to you. Judas had already made up his mind as to what he was going to do. And Satan never enters a door that's not left open for him. Satan never walks through a door that's not left wide open for him. Judas is not an innocent pawn. He is about to betray Jesus. Look, it says, next part, it says, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, what you'll see is that John, I think, is an amazing writer. He's like a poet, okay? He's, he's a guy who puts things in, and you're like, why does he put that little phrase, and it was night? Here's why. Because he's trying to communicate to us, the readers, that it wasn't just nighttime, like daylight, nighttime, that kind of thing, but it was nighttime in a spiritual sense. It was nighttime in the soul of Judas, Look, look at this image. He's walking away from who? Jesus, the light. He's walking into darkness spiritually. Do you catch that? Like John is like a, he's, he's, he's an amazing creative writer. It's night, not just night outside, but it's night in the soul of Judas. He's leaving the light of Jesus and going out into darkness so he can sin against Jesus. You know, whenever we read the Bible, we usually compare ourselves to the heroes of the story. So if you read David or Abraham or Moses, you look like, okay, how can I be more like Abraham? How can I be more like Moses? 
how can I be more like David, you know, and, and, and kill a giant, right? Um, so, but when we read the story of Judas, I think it's proper to ask the question, how am I like Judas? Don't look at the rest of the 11 and say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like Peter. That's who I want to be like, or I want to be like this guy. But you have to ask yourself the question, in what ways am I just like Judas? How do I betray Jesus? Because when you think about it, every sin that you and I commit is ultimately a betrayal, right? Every sin that we commit is ultimately a betrayal and a violation, and we are trading, we're a traitor to Jesus, right? Think about this. Every single sin you and I commit, we're essentially saying, Something else is better than Jesus. In the case of Judas, it was, I want 30 silver coins. I want money. I value money over Jesus. So he made that trade. So, so what, what do you struggle with? What do you trade for Jesus? Is it popularity? Is it ungodly relationship? Is it, um, is it money, potentially? Is it status? What are the things that you're willing to make a trade on when it comes to to Jesus, how do you betray him? And if you don't like that definition of sin, if you don't like the definition of sin that says, okay, I don't like, I understand that sin's wrong, but I don't want to call it betrayal. Like, that's just, that's too much. That's, that's clouding the issue. That's too deep. Don't take it that deep. And what I will tell you is that if you do not know the depth of your sin and your depravity, then you will never understand the depth of his grace. If you don't know how deep and, and cancerous and horrific our sin really is, you're never going to understand the depth of his grace. You understand that? It's like until you see sin in these ways, you'll never understand how great the cross was. You'll never understand how great his grace is if you don't get how, how bad our sin is. In fact, there was a guy that came into the church this past week. Occasionally we'll get the guy that just walks in off the street and says, I know no one at your church. I don't know any pastor at your church, but I need to talk to a pastor. And I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's have a conversation. So, um, which is great because when I first got into full-time ministry, I thought, man, I don't want to have to like leave the real world and go sit in an office in a bubble where no one ever wants to discuss spiritual things, right? And yet people come in all the time saying like, I need help can you help me? And so this guy came in this past week, and he's just um, struggling spiritually, not even sure if he's a believer at this point. Um, And his statement that stuck out to me, he said this. He goes, yeah, I want to get back on track with Jesus, but I just don't know if I'm worthy enough. I don't know if he'll take me back. I don't know if he's, I don't know if he thinks I'm worthy enough for me to be with him again. And I just said, wait, wait, hang on. Did you hear what you just said? And he goes, what? I said, you just said, you don't know if you're worthy enough? And I said, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is that you're not worthy enough. Like, I'm not worthy enough. No one's worthy enough. So, so you got to get out of your mind that, like, the point of being a Christian is to be worthy so that Jesus can accept you. The point of the gospel is that you're not worthy, I'm not worthy. That's why he had to die for you. That's why he gave his life for you. And so the point of the gospel is that none of us are worthy. That's the bad news. But the good news is that he's ultimately worthy. And when you put your faith and trust in him, he makes you worthy. It's this weird kind of irony that happens with the gospel. 
And so what are the ways that we betray Jesus? There's many ways that we do that in our lives. And if you look at the life of Judas, he is someone who valued status, valued money, more than he valued Jesus. He put those things on a pedestal as his God, and he valued those things over Jesus. And Jesus all the time was offering him himself. Like you, you got the God of the universe sitting there offering him to, your, to you, and, and you turn your back on him, and you trade him for something else. You know what's most convicting about Judas? Because he acted like, he walked like, he talked like, he ate like the disciples. He was just like them in so many ways. And it took three years for his true colors to come out. And I often think about one of my biggest fears as a youth pastor all the time is that when you leave here, what's your life going to be like? Like, what are you going to be like? Are you still going to follow Jesus? Are you still going to worship Jesus? Are you still going to be with Jesus when you leave this place? And one of my biggest areas of concern with us as a high school pastor is I know, I know so many people that I hear about down the road that I go, man, they, like that guy or that girl, like they totally just went off the rails. Once they got out of mom and dad's house, once they left the church, this church, they just went off the rails because why? They were just like Judas. They were walking like, talking like, acting like, eating like the disciples, but in the end... They turn their back on him, and they betray him, and they walk away from him. They walk out into the night, right? Skip down to verse 34. This is where um, one of my favorite texts in all of the scriptures, and, and here's what um, is it's odd, because I've actually never known, I've studied the Bible for years, I've never put this passage in the context of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Right? I've never thought of this being said in that room for some reason. I've just always extracted it out as its own little passage. But after Judas walks out of the room, Jesus says in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love each other. So what is going to be the fuel for you loving the people that you're sitting next to right now. It's not going to be your effort. It's not going to be your strength. It's not going to be your ability to love people. It's going to be the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself up and he loves you. In the same way that he, he extends himself to Judas, his, betray, his, his traitor, he extends himself to you. And he gives you the ability, because he loves you unconditionally, he gives you the ability to love other people unconditionally in your life. This is the fuel. This is what should fuel our community in the church. It should, what, it should be what brings about life-transforming community in the body of Christ. Look at verse 35. It says, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so how are people going to know that you belong to Jesus is it by church attendance? Is it by, is it by knowing a lot about Jesus? Is it about knowing a lot about the Bible? Is it by number of mission trips? Is it, number, is it how much money you give? This verse is pretty clear. It says, but by your love for each other, this is how they're going to know. 
The people out there are going to know that the people in here belong to Jesus by your love for each other. And if that doesn't exist in here, then they're going to have reason to be skeptical out there about us and who we really belong to. There's a reason. for It's all tied together. We can't separate that. There was a guy a long time ago named uh, Tertullian. Say Tertullian. Tertullian. I'm just making sure you're staying awake here. So Tertullian said that unbelievers, he said a long time ago, he said that unbelievers in the early church, unbelievers uh, said this of Christians in the early church. This is what unbelievers said about Christians in the early church, quoted by Tertullian. He says, go to the next uh, slide. See how they loved one another, how ready they are to die for one another. He's quoting unbelievers, what they said about Christians in the early church. So if you take a survey today on the street and said to unbelievers, like, what do you think about Christians? What do you think they would say? What are some things that they would say? I don't think it would be that. 